0: The statements and views expressed on the Voices in Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University's School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices in Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kanesan. Today, I am grateful to have Dr. Ellen Gordon-Bouvier here on the show as my guest. Ellen's trip to Emory was postponed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, so she has graced us with her virtual presence on our podcast. Ellen, thank you so much for being here. Dr. Ellen Gordon-Bouvier is a senior lecturer in law at Oxford Brookes University. She completed her PhD at the University of Birmingham an LLM from Queens College, Cambridge, and an LLB from the University of Leeds. Ellen is interested in family law, especially the legal regulation of adult relationships and how this can disadvantage those who perform caregiving and homemaker contributions. She is also interested in feminist and critical approaches to law, including vulnerability theory. Let's go ahead and get started. In 30 seconds, how would you describe vulnerability theory?
1: Right. Um, So to me, vulnerability theory, um, it's a response to the dominant liberal philosophical theories that have dominated legal and political thoughts um, for for centuries. Um, And um, those theories are constructed around the idea of... um, people as as being inherently autonomous, rational, self-sufficient. Vulnerability theory seeks to um, challenge that perspective um, by examining our shared vulnerability, um, this idea that we're all sort of embodied beings and we're all susceptible to various harms throughout um, the life course. Um, And rather than sort of masking and suppressing that as liberal theories, do um, vulnerability theory um, sort calls for the state to acknowledge vulnerability um, and to respond to it and accommodate it um, within its policies and within its
0: institutions. What drew you to vulnerability theory?
1: So it was sort of slightly accidental, actually, um, because um, I was doing a PhD um, on the rights of cohabiting couples in English law, and within English law, um, uh, it's quite notorious for giving very few rights to cohabiting couples, and it tends to be um, people who perform caregiving or homemaking contributions who lose out, people who haven't been able to make a financial contribution um, to the home because there's no sort of statutory system of redistribution of assets um, on the breakdown of those relationships. So anyway, I was trying to um, examine that legal position through um, sort of critical feminist lenses and my um, supervisor suggested that I should read um, work by, um, by Professor Martha Feynman and I'd already, I was already in the process of reading um, her book The Autonomy Myth um, but then when I started to look at the uh, work on vulnerability I found that that made a lot of my research make more sense and fall into place because it was this idea about sort of our shared vulnerability and how the state or the liberal neoliberal state um, tries to mask that vulnerability and conceal it, um, especially within the private family, Um, it's that 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 causes sort of hardship to the people um, who carry out that caregiving, that homemaking work. Um, So I found that it answered a lot of questions for me um, and it helped me put my research into context um, and helped me sort of think of other paths that I could explore within my research.
0: What does a vulnerability theory analysis reveal that a critical feminist analysis does not? How does vulnerability theory change the way we look at caregiving?
1: Yeah, that's quite an interesting question. I guess what vulnerability theory does is it sort of moves away from this tendency to analyze identity based categories um so i think that i mean you know i think in a, in a lot of ways perhaps um vulnerability theory and other feminist perspectives um are united in what they're saying for example in the state's failure to um to recognize um Caregiving and to value caregiving adequately. Um, but I think what I like about vulnerability theory um, in particular is it does move away from these categories where we say, well, you know, these, if you belong to this group, then you are, um, you know, disadvantaged or you're oppressed um, uh, or whatever. I think what vulnerability theory does is it sort of unites. Um, everything um, and it highlights this shared human condition um, of vulnerability that we can't escape um, because I think part of the problem is it, with, with this kind of rigid identity-based thinking it then becomes quite difficult to explain sort of situations and phenomenon that fall outside of those categories so they kind of fall to the wayside um, or we sort of imagine that you know i don't know you know for instance that um some of the some of the issues some of the problems that women face that those those issues couldn't affect um men um and it's not necessarily the fact that you know it is women who do the caring work it's it's the fact that the state devalues caring work and yes it does sort of push women towards the caring work but actually it is something that could affect anyone who performs caregiving work because, because it's that work that isn't valued. It's not necessarily always the sort of the person performing it. Um, so I think in that sense, um, in kind of looking at this shared vulnerability, I think that's something that's unique to vulnerability theory that can perhaps expand on a critical feminist analysis. Um, and it might also make it more I don't know. Potentially more attractive to to, um, to to scholars generally because perhaps some people think that you know certain kind of branches of study, like critical feminist studies, that it's it's a very sort of niche branch. Whereas I think what vulnerability theory does is it it says, well, no, this is something that affects all of us, um, and I think that's that's very interesting and it has a lot of potential. Um, so, your other question is how does vulnerability theory change the way we look at caregiving? Um, so, yeah, again, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think something that I want to, that I'm trying to kind of bring out in my work um, on this, is, is the idea that the state promotes this, um, this, this ideal of, of an autonomous, Um, person so somebody who's entirely self-sufficient and um, almost disembodied in that you know while they might have a body it's not a body that kind of causes them any problems um, or anything like that and so that's the image that the state portrays Um, now obviously that doesn't correspond to real life because we all know that throughout the human life course um, there are moments or there are um periods um during which we are completely dependent on other people for our survival so the the kind of the, the one that we all go through is infancy so when we're born we're unable to care for ourselves so we have to be cared for by others but there are other moments throughout life that we also um, require the care um of other people um, and that care, that caregiving work has to be performed in order for society to function. If we didn't have people who took care of, um, of others, then society would, would grind to a halt, um, essentially. Uh, so this image, this false image of autonomy is only possible if there's somebody in the background carrying out the caregiving work. Um, and The state doesn't want to acknowledge that because the state wants to pretend, well, we're all autonomous, we're capable of being um, self-sufficient. And if anyone kind of isn't, it's their fault. And um, it's because they haven't kind of taken certain opportunities that they had um, to become autonomous. Um, So I think what vulnerability theory does is it encourages us to look at how caregiving even when it takes place within what we sort of would term private families it actually has a um it has an overall impact on the rest of society and if that work didn't take place then society would not function and i think that's something that we're seeing kind of very much um, at the moment actually it's coming into it's coming into real sort of um, focus with this pandemic because there's a lot of parents who are having now they're being forced to combine sort of working from home with childcare, um, often with kind of um, well, with varying um, varying results really, um, and that perhaps previously um, people who relied on professional childcare were able to pretend that actually you know. Um, that wasn't something that was sort of particularly kind of relevant to, to their life, and that they could carry on with, you know, with, with their career um, without sort of thinking about that um, so much. That has very much been flipped on its head when people are being told to stay at home, and they're being told to combine caregiving with paid work. And suddenly, we can see that actually that doesn't really um, work very well. Uh, so yes, I, I guess, I guess to summarize that, I guess what vulnerability theory does is it um, allows us to see how the rest of society is so heavily dependent on um, the caregiving work that is performed within family settings, but also within sort of professional settings so sort of hospitals and, and care homes and things like that.
0: How can this inform policy recommendations Okay, so
1: um, policy recommendations. Um, I think, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think one of the key things and what I'm interested in looking at in my research um, is the way that we um, that, that we look at this, uh, because I think there's a tendency, especially, and I'm sure it's the same in or similar in the US, uh, but there is a tendency um, to um, sort of leave the family alone, and to avoid state intervention into the family unless it's strictly necessary. Um, and one of the kind of one of the moments when the state does intervene is, for instance, if relationships break down. So, for instance, if a couple gets divorced, then the state can intervene because the law allows redistribution of financial assets. The problem is that if you have unequal distributions of caregiving work, which is almost an inevitability actually because there is this, like I was saying in the answer to the, to the previous question, there is this inherent kind of incompatibility between caregiving and paid work, the expectations on paid workers are such that you know they really struggle to combine paid work with caregiving so within families it's often um divided up and um uh you know role specialization is um is encouraged so often the lower earner might then you know decide to compromise their career sort of, um even further to take on a um a caregiving role whereas the higher earner um is freed up to pursue their career Uh, and it's only really at at the point of um, a family breakdown, of relationship breakdown, that the state takes even the slightest bit of interest in that and within English law there is the possibility of, you know, if the couple has been married, um, there is the possibility of redistributing assets so that a caregiver could perhaps be compensated for, for some of the loss Um, that he or she might have suffered um, as a result of taking on that caregiving work. Um, But I think, you know, what what I'm interested in is is the fact that this is a very sort of narrow window of time um, in which the state does intervene into the family, because actually these problems, these inequalities, sort of economic disparities um, and other inequalities, and have actually existed within the private family unit before the relationship broke down. Um, and I think part of the problem is that there's very, there's, in this country, and again, I'm, I'm sure it's it's a similar situation, um, in the US, the state is very reluctant to give sort of financial assistance. Um, uh, so any financial assistance that is given is very, sort of, heavily stigmatised and uh, you have to go through various procedures uh, in order to get that. Um, And I think that perhaps in terms of policy, perhaps some of the problems that we are seeing when couples get divorced, and it tends to be predominantly women who find it very difficult to financially recover from divorce, some of those problems might be avoided if we had a more responsive state, if we had a state that Kind of intervened at an earlier stage and perhaps offered financial subsidies and um, pension top ups, um, you know, more affordable childcare um, and things like that, that might then
0: avoid these issues that then arise on divorce. Do you think the pandemic will change the state's interest in viewing individuals as autonomous?
1: yeah that's a really really good question actually um and you know it's it's quite it's quite interesting um you know the way that actually this pandemic has really kind of brought to the forefront so many of the things that vulnerability theorists have been saying um because and i'm talking from a uk perspective here so um as i said before we've got you know a state that is perhaps it's not as restrained as, as the U.S. state, but it's it's fairly restrained. And over the past ten years, we've had um, there been a lot of sort of cutbacks to public services, especially our national health service, um, which was already struggling hugely um, under um, under the burden of, sort of very limited um, public funds and. Um, very large demand from the population Um, and that was very much fueled by this idea that um, everyone has to take responsibility for themselves everyone has to be autonomous and if people require benefits if people require extra help it's because they you know haven't worked hard enough or um, you know even actually in this country even if people are ill they are subjected to quite rigorous and demeaning assessments to work out whether they are ill enough to um, to, to not have to work and there have been examples of people who've you know got terminal cancer and have been told that they're fit to, to go to work um, and that all kind of Flipped on its head a little bit when the coronavirus pandemic started. When we realised what we were dealing with, and the fact that actually this virus was attacking everybody, um, and that you could get it even if you were rich and even if you, you know, had had lots of assets, and you weren't immune from coronavirus, um, and it was it's seen as sort of affecting all of us. So in that sense, it kind of there was a sense of kind of people being bound together, and suddenly these politicians who previously had been saying, um, you know, there is no money for public services, were suddenly forced to say, well, you know, we will have to, people won't be able to work, we will have to cover, you know, a certain proportion of their salaries, Um, we have to provide financial assistance um, so that people can be safe, so that people can be well. Um, and so I think that that narrative about, you know, everyone takes care of themselves, it started to weaken. And I've also seen it weakening sort of within recent weeks um, in the news coverage about the coronavirus, because there's been a lot of kind of um, a call for sort of, um, it, you know, blame, blaming people who breach the lockdown regulations. So pointing out how selfish it is if you, you know, decide to go out and sit in the park um, all day, or if you decide to go and see friends despite having been told by the government that you can't do that. Um, And I think that whole discourse as well sort of feeds into this idea that actually we are dependent on what other people do. We're very heavily dependent on what other people do. And if somebody breaches the lockdown rules and decides to, you know, socialise with friends um, and... um, you know go out and that poses an immediate risk to us so we can't just kind of let people do what they want we have to we, we have to actually take an interest in that because our health is dependent on what um other people do so in that sense i think it's really brought to the forefront the kind of the interdependency um and and the relationality um of humans but i think the other issue actually um, that has come out through the coronavirus is that the reason we're having to take these very drastic measures um, and potentially measures that sort of infringe on civil liberties actually you know by by requiring individuals to stay in their homes and and um, prohibiting when they can go out um, but actually that has happened because we do not have the resources to deal with this pandemic other countries have much better resources. so we have a very low number of um, critical care beds so our health service was already overstretched before this happened and now it is you know even it's, it's even worse um, and the way that the NHS have partly coped with that is by not treating people who don't have coronavirus so, so other people who ordinarily would have got medical assistance um, you know' That is being pushed back. Um, it's being uh, it's being cut back. So it it brings to light, I think, this kind of this this idea that actually this whole thing that the government was and that the state was promoting in the past ten years, this idea of austerity, of personal responsibility, um, of autonomy and self sufficiency actually, that hasn't served us well at all. That has That's meant that we're in a much, much weaker position and in a much worse position than other countries. And within Europe, we have one of the highest death rates. Um, actually, we also have a complete or, well, not total complete, but almost complete absence of um, protective equipment for frontline workers. So today we had a minute silence for um National health Service workers who had died from the coronavirus and 90 people working in the national health service so doctors and nurses predominantly have died from the coronavirus but the reason but you know in a way I kind of found that the, the kind of the way that that was being framed in the media that these were sort of heroes who had sort of fallen for the good of the country and and things like that it was um I, I thought that was wrong because actually they didn't need to die because State should have provided them with the necessary equipment to be able to do their job in dangerous conditions. Um, that was not provided, and it was not provided because of cost reasons. It was because the government decided that this wasn't money that was um, that was worth spending. So I think all of those things are sort of really coming out. Actually, with this pandemic, we're really seeing all of these all of these various things that vulnerability theory touches upon um it's all coming to life through um through the pandemic and through um the government's reaction to it and um also the kind of general public's reaction to it Um, and the final thing i would say actually about that is um when the pandemic first sort of hit um the the government's proposed response was that we should just let it spread throughout um uh, through, um, throughout the population um, and hope that enough people acquired herd immunity, um, they had to backtrack on that because that that policy was very much kind of a survival of the fittest um, policy. It would have favoured people who were younger, stronger, healthier, um, and it would have um, disproportionately affected elderly, disabled people um, and you know, luckily they've backtracked from that. But it was quite interesting that that was their initial response—that we should, you know, sacrifice these people um, for, for the good of everyone
0: else. Let's talk about your research. Has the pandemic changed your topic at all?
1: I think, you know, I, I think the pandemic has provided me with opportunities to give examples of vulnerability theories, um, uh, sort of impact on um, on the real world. Um, I wouldn't say to change my topic necessarily. So my main project is the, uh, at the moment is that I'm working on a um, monograph, um, which uh, is hopefully due to be published uh, next year sometime, Um I meet the deadlines. So my monograph um, examines um, the, uh, the idea of, um, embodiment of vulnerability and of the legal regulation of the private family and how the private family um, and how it's uh, sort of understood within English law, how that um, has sought to or how the private family has worked as a kind of mask, a kind of cover um, for the reality of human vulnerability and dependency. Um, so what I'm interested in is, um, basically how does the, how does the legal regulation of the private family, how does that reinforce this idea of, um, the myth of autonomous personhood? So how does the law through the way it regulates the family promote the idea that we should be, um, Individualistic, um, economically self sufficient, um, and we should be capable of, sort of surviving um, on our own rather than within a relational network. Um, I, I look at how, because the family is kind of shrouded in this discourse of privacy um, and of. Um, uh, kind of, of of being somewhere where the state can't intervene, um, and also of representing, I think, increasingly these days, of representing individual choice. So often, you know, in terms of people who um, who suffer disadvantage as a result of making caregiving contributions during um, during a marriage or during a cohabiting relationship. Um, often that's explained away as well they chose to do that so they can't come back at a later date and and say that they um you know they want assistance because they knew what the deal was they decided to give up their career so they can't come back now and and ask for assistance um and what i'm arguing or what i'm looking at um particular is, is how that um how that promotion of autonomy how that directly disadvantages the people who do perform caregiving work um within the family because caregiving work is concealed within the family it's not seen as having any kind of public value um and the legal process so especially on relationship breakdown um is very much this expectation that people should quickly recover from divorce and move on um, any ongoing dependency is stigmatized um, quite heavily actually um, and that's something that's increasing because i think there's there's been an increase in um the in in this discourse of um individualism and autonomy um, so for instance the role of women has moved on very much from you know women being seen in, in quite sort of patronizing terms as helpless victims and in need of you know support but not entitled perhaps to kind of an equal share of the assets but it's now kind of gone the other way so now there's very much this discourse of formal equality but it doesn't take into account um the fact that you know your your position. If you give up your job to to look after the family, um, your position for the rest of your life is going to be extremely different to um, if you were allowed to pursue your career uh, during that time. And, and sort of, so I'm interested in the sort of longer term effects as well, because those are also downplayed in the um, in the legal framework because there is this very sort of short window of legal intervention, and there's a very strong policy against long term um, dependency. Um, so I'm looking at that, and I'm also interested within my research um, in yeah, so sort of building on and, and drawing on um, Professor Feynman's theoretical work in a in a kind of in a more specific context. So in the context um, of the private family. So something that I develop or that I want to develop in my book is, is the link between vulnerability and temporality um, so and within that i kind of look at how how the private family um, fits in with that but i very much see you know the state of being vulnerable as as having a strong temporal component because our vulnerability consists of the fact that we you know firstly that we can't control what happens to us so you know we can't predict predict, um, misfortunes that might happen to us Um, but also the fact that we can't sort of stop the flow of time so we can't stop the fact that you know we are situated within this life course and we are going to go through the aging process um, and we will eventually although we might not become completely dependent upon others our bodily strength will weaken Um, So, and you know, once we reach old age, we're more likely to be dependent, and we are also likely to be dependent on sort of resources that perhaps we built up during our more, you know, our stronger years, if you like. And I think that is something that's a key um, point in terms of looking at the disadvantage that's suffered by um, people who. Uh, make economic sacrifices in order to perform caregiving work because they often give up the opportunity of a pension um, and they severely restrict their earning capacity Um, if their relationship breaks down later in life they might be facing you know going back into the job market but being you know 20 years older than all other candidates Um, and I think that is insufficiently that's insufficiently recognised. That kind of sacrifice that um, that those people make, and the long-term disadvantage that they suffer, because the law expects them to recover quickly, it expects them to go back to work, and that you know within five years they should be in in the position that you know they would have been in um, had they have they not you know got married or have they not got divorced. Whereas actually those those events those life events um can actually have a very long-term impact and can lead to serious in financial inequalities later down the line i think that's something that's becoming increasingly important um through you know the increasingly aging population so people are living longer and longer but they're not necessarily kind of living self-sufficiently they might have you know a, a long period of time where they're you know they they are alive but they're not able to work for instance so they are heavily dependent um they're dependent on relational networks so family members but they're also dependent on resources um and if the state doesn't provide those resources um it just tells us that well we need to we need to take responsibility for for building up those resources ourselves um but at the same time it expects some members of the population to you know sacrifice their earning capacity in order to provide um caregiving because again because the state won't take responsibility for that and it says that's something that for the private family to um to deal with um then it's actually very wrong for for the state then to to allow these people to 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 suffer these hardships as a result so that's, that's sort of i know that's a very kind of long-winded um, summary, perhaps, of of, um, of my current research, but it's very much based on this idea of of kind of this promotion of autonomy um, versus the reality of embodied um, personhood um, and and the problems that 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 causes.
0: You spoke earlier about the deaths of frontline healthcare workers and mentioned that the government had decided. That providing personal protective equipment was not worth the cost. Do you hope that the recognition of universal human vulnerability in your research and in vulnerability theory in general will shift the state's focus from primarily economic goals?
1: Yes, that's a really good question. Yes, I really hope so. I really hope that you know significant lessons will be learned. And actually another sort of um, relevant point within this that is that our Prime Minister um, actually contracted coronavirus himself, and he was actually placed into intensive care um, for several days. And I, you know, when I heard that news, I thought, well, I hope he, you know, kind of sees now um, the importance of this, the importance of funding the NHS, of, of providing protective equipment um and of recognizing that actually this kind of idea of um autonomous invulnerability if you like um this idea of thinking well you know misfortunes don't affect me they affect other people i was hoping that you know that would trigger a kind of shift in his thinking i think it's probably too early to say whether that's actually taken place although it's not looking kind of too, too good at the moment. They're still sort of stalling on providing um, this equipment. They're, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the figures that we're being given in terms of the number of people who have died from coronavirus, you know, for instance, that excludes people who've died in um, care homes for the elderly. Um, so I think there's still a very kind of, a very real need to recognise shared vulnerability. However, I I think, you know, some of the things that have happened during this very short period of time since the pandemic broke out, um, would have been perhaps, you know, a few years ago, would have actually been unimaginable, this idea that um, the government is saying, well, we will, you know, provide, we will give, workers 80 percent of their wages we will give small businesses 80 percent of their um uh, projected um protect projected profits or um or earnings um so a lot of that kind of idea of collective action um i think might have been um difficult to imagine um you know a couple of years ago so in that sense there is there is some hope um in another sense, you know those those sort of government initiatives. It then turns out, you know, that actually they don't they don't actually apply to everybody. Um, there's obviously a problem, for instance, with um, undocumented um, migrant workers uh, in this country. So they can't seek assistance um, from anywhere. I've been reading this morning about. Um, uh, workers from the hospitality industry so from restaurants and pubs who've lost their jobs and have not been able to pay their rent um and have been um evicted uh, probably not lawfully actually but um but they've been thrown out of their homes and, they, and they've actually been made homeless um so they're being put in this kind of enormously precarious situation um as a result so i don't think the state is going far enough at the moment but i think there's definitely been a kind of move towards more collective action and i also think it's quite interesting because if you look at um countries uh, where there is a kind of perhaps a, a greater um or perhaps less of a sense of individualism so i'm thinking perhaps of Japan or South Korea, um, they seem to have dealt with the coronavirus perhaps in a, in a better way um, than, for instance, the U.S. response, which obviously is a country that's kind of very heavily dominated by this discourse of um, individualism and freedom, um, especially. Um, and this idea that, you know, you perhaps have to let go of some of your ideas about freedom and individualism in order to ensure the safety of the the population. Um, Yes, I do hope that there will be a shift um, in terms of um, moving away from just looking at pure economic um, goals and economic growth, because actually that is part of the reason why we're in the situation we're in. We cannot, in this country, Um, we cannot realistically lift the lockdown restrictions because we still don't have a health service that can cope with this. And the reason we don't have a health service that can cope with it is because the government has consistently put cost over people's lives. Now we're in a situation where, you know, they have to act, but they're being hampered by what they did over the past 10 years in terms of cutting back um, and as a result, we're likely to, to to need a longer lockdown, and people will have to um, will, will have to live with that. Which uh, it's yeah, it's it's unfortunate. And I think I think the countries that did prioritise um, public spending and did prioritise healthcare resources, I think that they will find the recovery from um, the coronavirus pandemic and. The sort of process of getting back to normal, I think that they will find that easier um, than a country that has sort of stripped everything out of their public services um, and is now relying on people just staying in their homes in order to prevent the spread.
0: What would you like listeners to remember about our conversation today?
1: You know, I think our discussions actually about the um, coronavirus pandemic um, have been quite useful. I think in terms of focusing um, on how how this how vulnerability theory works in real life, because it's not just an abstract theory um, that you know is d- debated at academic conferences. We're actually talking about how this how it impacts on ordinary people's lives and also how it impacts on all of our lives because I think that's a key that 's sort of the, the key point about vulnerability theory that vulnerability isn't um, something that affects you know a specific group only a specific group um, and something that we can think well you know I am not a vulnerable person so therefore you know I don't need to think about these things I think um, what the pandemic has done is it's, it's really demonstrated that we are all fragile and we're also highly dependent on what those around us do. We're, we're dependent on other people kind of acting in a certain way um, and we're also you know kind of continuously exposed to, um, to, to various harms and we have very little control over that um, and I think that's something that's kind of really been brought um, to the forefront. Um, and also in terms of my own research, um, in terms of family law, I think you know sort of the, the key point that I want to get across there is the problems that are created when we promote this idea of um, individualistic autonomy, um, and I would hope that perhaps in the future um, we can see. Um, we can see a society in a state that is more um more responsive to vulnerability and um recognises to a greater extent um that it's not just economic work um that sustains society it's also um you know caregiving and i think actually that's another thing that the pandemic has has done actually it's it's shown that actually the, the really important jobs actually it it's not people who are bankers or lawyers um, or anything like that. It's actually um, the care workers, the NHS workers, um, teachers, um, you know, child carers um, and uh, transport workers and sort of frontline workers. So, so basically all, all, all the things that needed to kind of sustain, sustain the basic human condition, but that so far, We've just taken them for granted um, and we've not really valued them. We've underpaid them and undervalued them. um, And I really hope that in the future we can kind of move towards valuing them to a greater extent.
0: Thank you so much for being here, Ellen, and zooming in all the way from England. Thank you so much for doing this, um, for interviewing me. I really enjoyed it. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.